it's completely turned our world upside down. I mean, it's not all been negative, but it's certainly changed just about every facet of our lives. Welcome to episode 36 of Flip Switch, the bipolar and depression connection brought to you by depressedteens.com. This is a show that deals with young adults and teenagers living with mood disorders such as bipolar disorder and depression. Today we're going to do something a little different here on the Flip Switch. Every week we devote an entire show, and sometimes two or three shows, to one aspect of living and thriving with mood disorders, going over the things that one might need to know and what one could do to help themselves get well and maintain that wellness. But today we're going to focus the show not on people living with mood disorders, but some of the people living with the people living with mood disorders. On this show, we'll be talking to several parents about their experiences raising children and teenagers with mood disorders. Bipolar disorder and depression take a toll not only on the individual that is afflicted, but on everyone around that individual as well, be it friends, family, or colleagues. It's only appropriate that we take the entire show to examine just how, though you can feel quite alone experiencing the ups and downs of a mood disorder, others are struggling right along with you. On our show today, we'll abandon our traditional format for the day, instead focusing our entire time talking to our four parents about their experiences, both good and bad, in raising their afflicted children. We'll get insights about what they've done, what they've learned, and what worked best for them. So sit back and prepare to hear just how wide the struggle can reach from yourself to others. Flip the switch, and we're here. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 36 of Flip Switch. I'm your host, Chris. Today we're talking to parents about what it's like to raise children with mood disorders. Mood disorders can affect more than just the person afflicted. They can cause grief and struggle in the families, friend networks, and more in those dealing with things like bipolar disorder and depression. These parents will give you different flavors of what the experience can be like. I hope you walk away with a sense that the suffering caused by mood disorders is never localized to one person, but ripples like a stone in a pond outward, affecting those around you. These parents are living proof of that. They're also living proof that the struggle is worth it and that people can indeed overcome and persevere. These four parents have their own stories, but it's important to remember that there are thousands upon thousands and more of families dealing with many of these same issues. In that vein, these parents are a cross-section of all who deal with these issues, and many of the things you'll hear them talk about are recounted by vast amounts of other parents again and again, each family with their own twist on the experience. I talked to our parents before the show and edited many of their responses for you here. I started out by asking our parents for their statements about the experience of raising a child with a mood disorder. Our first parent, Nancy, had this to say. It's completely turned our world upside down. I mean, it's not all been negative, but it's certainly changed just about every facet of our lives, how different family members interact. It certainly had a huge effect on my husband and myself as far as our relationship and our ability to parent. It's made us question just about every facet of our parenting skills. It caused us to put our lives completely on hold at times. It's been very isolating. It's certainly been a growth experience, too. Nancy is married with three daughters ranging in ages from 11 to 15. Her oldest daughter was diagnosed with bipolar disorder at the age of 9. Her middle daughter has dealt with behavioral problems as well, and last year, her youngest daughter was also diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Nancy described the many episodes with her oldest daughter going through terrible all-night rages and crying and its dramatic effects on her family. 
Another parent we talked to was Jeannie. Jeannie now has two adult children affected by mood disorders, one with the diagnosis of schizoaffective disorder with a predominance of depression from the age of nine, and one that experienced adult-onset bipolar disorder. She had this to say when I asked her about raising a child with a mood disorder. First, I felt that, that I'm just being hyper about it, that there really isn't anything wrong, Anything my child felt or did had to be normal because my child must be normal. When it hit us over the head with a two-by-four <laughs> that something is severely wrong and we could no longer ignore it, I felt grief, horrible grief for the life that it seemed she could no longer have for what she lost. I felt fear for her future, not just for how she was going to take care of herself, but, you know, financially. Um, it was very complex. Another parent was Terry. Terry has two children, her oldest being diagnosed with bipolar disorder at the age of six, and later her younger daughter being also diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Now 16 years old, Terry's oldest son became so unstable that last year, the state in which he lives took custody of her child away from her in order to put him into residential treatment, an action by the state that Terry has fought vocally and forcefully. Terry has spent a large amount of monetary, time, and legal resources to try to get quality care for her children. I asked her about her thoughts about that experience. Well, the first thing I can say is it's a nightmare because as a parent, we're responsible for seeking out the best medical care that we can find, the best therapists that we can find, researching medications and trying to make a decision about whether we want our child exposed to a medicine that's never been trialed on children before. We have to know something about education because we have to fight the school system to get them a, a decent education. Let's see, we need to know something about the criminal justice system because when they get in trouble, heaven knows we have to know what to do to get them out of trouble and most all of this we have to do on our own. One of the things that our parents consistently described was the many trials and tribulations that went on behind closed doors with their kids. Not only were these trying times varied, tumultuous, and highly disturbing, but episodes of outburst, anger, and wailing were, at times, an almost daily routine. I can remember it going on from maybe 6 at night until 2 in the morning. And, you know, you're just trying to get your child is settled down, you're trying to find some relief for them and for the rest of the people in the house. And, you know, one person would go at it for an hour or so, and then you'd tag off because you're emotionally spent, you're drained, and whatever you're doing isn't working. And so the other person would kind of come in with hopefully a fresh approach. And you just keep doing this until you either weather the storm or you come up with something that works. And sometimes we found that there really wasn't anything you could do, that this just had to run its course, whether it was a rage or a a meltdown or, you know, a massive bout of depression or, you know, just manic behavior. You just had to weather the storm and try to keep all of your children safe. The biggest issue was the screaming and crying, what some people would call temper tantrums, but really temper has nothing to do with it. It was more like meltdown. It was extremely stressful. Uh, even though she learned that just you know she was just two and a half she already learned to run into another room where she could kick and flail and scream 
um, sometimes she didn't make it, and it didn't matter. You could hear the screams from outside the house, and often we would all just go sit outside. It was so distressing to the entire family. At home, what the whole family would do when she had her meltdown could last for four hours. We learned early on to just leave her alone. There was never a peaceful moment in our household. It was like walking on eggshells all the time. It affected lots of relationships. Her relationship with all of her family members, everybody else's, my relationship with my other children, my relationship with her father. And I just wanted to figure, I wanted to know what it was so that we could deal with it. That last parent was Leslie. She has three children, one girl and two boys, the daughter being diagnosed with bipolar disorder at the age of 15. She described her daughter as having issues with anger early on, with signs of depression emerging later and finally resulting in mania when she reached teenage years. I asked them how they dealt with that personally. I wanted to know how it made them feel and what they did to protect themselves during all this. You know, I think you kind of go through sort of those same five stages that, that people go through when they're dealing with a loss because you are dealing with a loss of the vision of your child as they knew it. And I think it's very common to feel very overwhelmed at first because often you have no idea what the diagnosis means. And then, you know, denying it, the bargaining, the grief, you know, all those steps you go through. I, I think now I'm more accepting of it We've been very fortunate that we've had some periods of stability, so we know how good things can be and what our child is able to accomplish when she's stable, and often that can get us through the periods of instability. I think we're just more realistic about and more hopeful about what the outcome will be for our child, where early on, you know, we were just so terrified. We were terrified of the thought of medications. We were terrified of the prognosis. We were just really didn't have any sense of how this was ever going to be anything short of horrible. Because I had an older child, I think that I had that. If she had been my first or my only, it probably would have been a lot easier to blame myself. But because she had an older sibling and even a younger one where we didn't have these issues, I don't think I, I felt like we had tried everything and exhausted all of our, we did everything we could. So I, I never really got into blaming myself a lot. So these families nightly were dealing with little traumas, little crises that would happen each day that they had to deal with. And interestingly, Nancy said this about dealing with trauma. Most people can weather a crisis when it's a finite beginning and end. But when this just keeps going and keeps going and you have more and more of your time is being consumed with dealing with a very stressful situation and never really getting a break, it really takes a toll. If that's true, it was amazing that these women were able to cope at all. And the reality was, sometimes they weren't able to cope that well. There was a time when I, I just, I wanted to run away. I fantasized all kinds of bad things. I fantasized about getting my own apartment nearby. I just wanted out. And I was very depressed and didn't really recognize it. With such personal struggles going on as a result of dealing with all this every single night, I was surprised that these parents didn't fold completely. But then Nancy brought up an excellent point. My child was 
just extremely difficult to deal with, very frustrating, very nasty. And it was just, you know, I felt like Groundhog's Day where we just keep going through this over and over again. And it was hard for me not to get, you know, short with her and, and get frustrated. And then, you know, I stepped back and said, you know, right away I said, oh, that wasn't the right way to handle this. And I was able to kind of step away from it and go, okay, if it's that hard for me, imagine how much she's hurting. That was a remarkable statement to me. Though times are trying, the focus remains on the child and how they can get better. And more importantly, how those same things that cause the parents so much heartache must be even worse for the kids dealing with those mood issues. It was remarkable that none of our parents ever lost sight of this. And I wasn't sure if this was a testament to them or just something that arises deep in the heart of every parent. I know during our discussions, the kids all too often faded in light of these parents' own struggles. Yet the parents were always able to keep focus on moving forward and trying to do their best with parenting and getting their kids help. But certainly there must have been times where they just wanted to forget it all and run away. My question became, over such a long time dealing with these issues, how does someone separate problems associated with dealing with mood issues from the inherent value of the goodness of their kids? When she would go into a rage and she'd be so destructive and so verbally abusive, I, I would have to tell myself, this is not my daughter, this is her illness. And the things that she says, she doesn't really mean, but... But you you still hear them and your brain still processes them, so that's real difficult to go through. It took a lot of practice, and I would just talk to myself, and I would just tell myself, this is not my daughter, this is her illness. It was almost like I would almost chant that, this is not my daughter, this is her illness. You know, in a perfect world, we're able to look at our child and say, okay, that behavior is the illness and not my child, and not personalize it. But the reality is, when you're dealing with it day in, day out, it wears you down and you become vulnerable and you become raw. I have to say that my daughter has actually helped me tremendously with that because in watching her, I've learned to pick out what is manipulation versus what is something that she can't control and also sometimes she will tell me like she doesn't really have a lot of friends and she will say it's because of me it's because of me and the stuff I do but I don't know how to do any different mommy they're also quick to point out one of the more annoying social consequences of these disorders revolve around other people looking in from the outside of their situation and commenting that they just weren't parenting right when these women knew very well that they were doing all they could and more especially with my oldest one I come to realize it had nothing to do with my parenting and it had nothing to do with my love for my child or my wishes for, you know, great th great things when he grows up, et cetera. People with a, the bad parenting notion, I chalk it up to ignorance. And, you know, I got a lot of criticism from other people, outside people, who basically just saw a child with behavior problems, who was out of control, who thought that I wasn't dealing with her properly. I didn't have to deal with that, and that was really frustrating. I feel very badly for all the families whose extended families are arguing with them also, saying, oh, there's nothing wrong with your kid, or oh, you just need to, I don't know, spank them, right. or you need to lay down the law. That would have been horrible. You find out that some people are more judgmental than others. There's some people that you can tell what's going on, and others that you just don't go there. And ironically, when you get in and when your kids are school age, you tend to develop a lot of your friendships with the parents of their friends. 
and we lost a lot of friends um, because our daughter was no longer interacting with anybody. You know, she became very socially isolated for a couple of years. That was kind of weird. Besides just everyday stress, I wondered what other kind of toll it took on these parents. One thing I learned was that the stress of dealing with their kids' setbacks often caused great strife with each of their marriages. How did they handle it? You get a really good marriage therapist. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, seriously, I found that has been one of the most helpful things because it has forced us to keep our marriage a priority and it's forced us to take time every week or every several times a week to just focus on us and to have an objective person in there. You know, not long ago, our marriage counselor said, you know, out of all of the couples that I'm currently working with, I don't think there's one of them that could withstand what you guys have been going through. And we kind of looked at each other like, wow, I don't know if that's good or bad. I mean, I guess it's good that we're still together. In my current marriage, we have had some problems. I wouldn't say they're very severe, but we have had some problems because my husband has never seen children that are affected by any kind of a mental illness. Right. And so he goes by the old standard. You know, you just spank them or you use the traditional forms of discipline, and that's not the way it is. You, With children, with my children, and I guess with most children that have bipolar disorder, you must learn to pick and choose your battles. And until I explained to him that I wasn't going to fight with these children, with my children every day over something as simple as putting their shoes in the correct place or whatever, it's not worth it. And as he has spent time in family therapy and et cetera, he's come to see that rearing children like mine is not like rearing children that don't have this disease. My husband and I, up until then, we had a great marriage. And we started having conflict over parenting, you know, not just how to meet her needs, but what her needs were and what was behavior and what was, there was so much friction that developed between us. And then we developed situational depression. In the end, from working together through this, we have a much stronger and closer relationship. We thought we had a good marriage, but now we are a united front. And I can completely see how this sort of situation can pull families apart and cause divorces. And you don't go through this unchanged. It's either you're going to be devastated by it or you're going to have a better, stronger marriage where there is better communication. While it worked out well for a couple of our parents, sometimes the results weren't so good. Our marriage wasn't great to begin with and then when our daughter was having problems, it was very difficult for my daughter's father to deal with and accept and he did not want to put her on medication. So that ultimately led towards the divorce, which had a major impact on our daughter. It struck me that as I talked to these parents, I continually tried to refer them back to describing how they felt during the more trying times. But more often than not, 
they tended to talk in terms of process rather than emotions. By that I mean that when I would ask them how they felt, they would often immediately start talking about what they did to handle the situation, not how they felt. I noticed this over and over again with each of the parents, so often that it made me wonder if possibly it was some kind of defense against the sheer weight of what it was they were dealing with. I had to be really strong, and it's almost like I had this shield, this, you know, shield that I would put up to protect me from all the pain and the hurt. And then as she got better, as she got healthier and matured, I was able to let that shield down a little bit, and I didn't have to protect her quite as much. And and it was almost kind of like things kind of caved in then because I I let that shield down. I remember talking to my therapist about that, and I told him one time, I said, I'm afraid that I don't have any feelings anymore because I've I've had to be strong and block my emotions, and I had... I had to learn how to do that to get through, especially through her rages. You have to put on that sort of emotionless exterior just to keep from personalizing it. Perhaps to stop and think too long about how trying it can feel is better left at times when there's less to deal with. Instead, they choose to solve problems and move ahead as best as they can. All of the parents took their kids to multiple doctors. That made me wonder. If they had to deal with the patient care system so often, what did they think about it? And how did they adjust to having to use it so often? I was shocked not only by their calmness and resolute nature in dealing with therapists and psychiatrists, but the astounding lengths they went to to get their kids good care. You know, the trips to the, the psychiatrist and the trips to the therapist, and then you throw in a few orthodontist appointments and everything else. You know, you just, that's what you do. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, you know, now, because our our psychiatrist is 90 miles away, I do try to get, um, you know, both my kids' appointments on the same day and the same, you know, you know to each other in time-wise because that's a lot of driving to do. And then we just right. try to make some fun of it. And then, you know, I, I think the the one thing that I never really gotten used to is, is the, the lab work that the kids have to go through because they have, both have to have fairly regular blood draws and, it's not particularly fun. We had sort of that blind acceptance that somebody who has a certain degree or a certain number of letters after their name is just all-knowing and you don't question them and, you know, you just trust their judgment. And we've learned through trial and error that you have to be, I don't know if aggressive is the right word, but you have to be a proactive consumer. Really look to find the person who's best equipped to care for your child that not everybody, not everybody's going to be the same, and not everybody's going to have the same knowledge and experience and, you know, relationship, especially, I think, a therapist. That's a very personalized fit. I've gotten to the point where I just interview therapists over the phone before I even bother to drag my kids to them because I can usually tell pretty quickly if this is somebody who, A, has the experience that we need, and B, has the personality type that's going to mesh with my child. Educate yourself. You're going to be a consumer of health care for until that child turns 18. You will be a consumer of health care for that child. And as a consumer of health care, just like if you're a consumer of anything else, you know, uh, mechanics, the grocery store, whatever, you, you have a right to speak up and to be heard. I wanted the best care for my child, and since nobody else was going to hand it to me, it meant I had to look for the best care. And I live in a very rural area, and there's not an overabundance of child and adolescent board-certified psychiatrists. So lots of times, some of the folks that 
treated my son early on. They were not board certified, and one doctor that he had, my son was a walk-in pharmacy. And and I really didn't know, know I really didn't know better because he was my first one. He was my learning curve. It was the expense and the logistics that was a little trickier, but it just that was just part of our normal schedule. Her her therapist is 70 miles away from where we live. We live in a pretty rural area, mm-hmm. and once we found the the psychiatrist that was good for her and diagnosed her, I went to him and kind of did the same thing. I want you to refer me to a therapist that you know personally that you know can help her and. And he referred us to someone, nobody locally, because we'd already exhausted all those resources. But um, there again, she's been seeing the same therapist for five or six years. And we went, we drove down there weekly for a while, which was a, an expense, but it, you know, it, it's a necessity. It's kind of like, you know, you have a child that needs medication. It, you don't put that on the back burner, it becomes a priority. It was amazing, but it still didn't explain the relative ease with which they talked about going to such lengths for treatment, as one parent noted. As a parent, you know, you just feel like your job is to help your kids to be better. You know, if they've got a cold, you, you know, wrap them up in blankets and you bring them chicken soup and you put the nice soft box of Kleenex there and you do what you can to make them feel better. After extensively talking to each parent, I wondered, out of all the things they'd dealt with, what was the major life lesson they'd learned? What was something they'd gained that the average person not helping to raise a child with a mood disorder might not get? Our family and our extended family have a greater awareness of people with mental illness, people with disabilities. And we've all become, especially her younger brother, has become much more patient and tolerant. Hmm. And I used to tell him that, you know, this is really tough right now, but someday you're going to be a stronger person and you're going to be more accepting and more tolerant of others in your life because of having learned how to deal with your sister. I mean, I think that she and I would have been close anyway. Mm-hmm. But if anything, I guess maybe her being ill, has, having this illness has, has maybe made us closer. Well, I've learned that certain states can take your, your children away from you for this. I didn't know that. I didn't know that states could take custody of your child away from you. I've learned a lot about the medications that work and don't work. I've learned an awful lot about picking and choosing my battles over everyday things. And I've learned how to let my government know when they're screwing up. Oh, the biggest bonus is that, you know, you appreciate every little success at a level that nobody else could ever experience. And so the little successes that other people would just take for granted and not even consider a success. You know, we celebrate and we enjoy and we uh, applaud on a regular basis because those um, accomplishments are just so amazing because of what our kids have been through. In the big picture, it's made me more patient and wish I could say that on a daily basis, but it certainly has made me rethink my priorities and let go of a lot of things that I probably spent way too much time worrying about or perseverating on in the past. Each of our parents drove home one point to me. Suffering from the lows of a horrible depression or the erratic anger and manic highs of a bipolar outburst is never a singular phenomenon. As you suffer, so too do the people that care for you, be it friends at school, brothers and sisters, or in this case, parents. The point is that there seems to be more than enough suffering to go around with depression and bipolar disorder. Again, I continued to lose sight of who was the afflicted person in the family after hearing these stories, 
And maybe it's best that I did because, in the end, everyone has to deal with the mood disorder in a family. And therefore, in some way, everyone is afflicted. These parents showed that courage and support can help to overcome a lot, and yet they showed us that the struggle can be quite horrendous and continual as well. The only way they seemed to get through it all, the only way their kids seemed to thrive, the only way any of these issues were faced at all with any kind of success was together. And that's the most important thing I learned from this whole experience. Families with members suffering from mood disorders like bipolar disorder and depression suffer together, and they can only overcome and thrive the same way together. Thanks for joining us on this week's episode of Flip Switch. Next week we'll return with our regular format and our other co-hosts. Remember, you can get a hold of us by emailing us at flipswitch at bpkids.org. Flip the switch, and we're gone.